seat, we will get started with our second session of our series, Identity Crisis, Who Does God Say That I Really Am? We have some notes for that. Most of you received those on the way in. The ushers are doing a great job handing them out. But some of the guys are in the aisles to hand those out to anybody who doesn't have them. Here you go, Luke. So if you need some notes, get their attention. Dave's over here, Luke's over here, Daniel's over there. We got Carl and uh, Larry as well. Everybody good? Great job, guys, as always. Thank you. And those notes, there were some questions about. We had uh, eight pages of notes last week. You have eight pages of notes this week. They're the same ones. We got through four pages of those eight last week. So it's the same ones, but we put a cool cover on the, on the front this week to try to throw you off as best, as best we can. Some of you are here this week who were not here for the opening week last week. So I will do a review starting on page one, but I won't spend a ton of time on that for the benefit of those who were here and to, at the risk of repeating myself. I don't want to do that for very long, but for the benefit of those who, who were not. This is identity crisis. Who does God say I, I really am? And at the top of page one, we talk about the seriousness of not understanding our identity, being lost in terms, of, in terms of who we are. And I say at the top there that there are many ways to be lost. You can be geographically lost, which means you're in an unknown place and you don't have a map or a GPS. You can be psychologically lost. That is, you're in an unfamiliar situation and you don't have a frame of reference to process it. Or you can be ontologically lost, that means you're unmoored from your very being, your very identity, and you don't have an authority to establish that, to tell you what it's supposed to be, to recalibrate it, to bring you back to what it should be. And I say in that second paragraph, when we are lost geographically, we're asking, where am I? When we're lost psychologically, we're asking, how am I? But when we're lost ontologically, we're asking, who am I? And of the three, that third one, ontological confusion is the most serious because knowing who we are is foundational for all that we think and do. And this is why confusion about identity leads to so many moral and ethical problems and challenges. And so it's imperative then that we move from our identity crisis to identity confidence. And I mentioned last week that our society is, is convulsing really with the results of this kind of loss of identity. And it's loss of identity in terms of who am, I in, who am I as a human being? Who am I as a sexual being? Who am I as a relational being? Who am I as a political being? On it goes. And people have lost their moorings on all of these. Having lost that now, we're seeing the, the consequences of that. So this course over the next several weeks is designed to try to bring us back, to anchor us to what it was we were made to be and who it is we can be remade to be in, in Jesus Christ. That third paragraph says, how we see ourselves will profoundly affect the way we live. A low self-image keeps us from being all that we can. An inflated self-image sets us up for disappointment. But the good news is our creator knows us better than we know ourselves, having created us. And having give us, given us a book that tells us about himself, ourselves, and our relationship to him. And so that's what we're going to look at. We started then last week 
where it's advisable to begin any task, and that is at the beginning, and in the beginning God is where the Bible starts, in the beginning God. And if we are going to have a proper understanding of who we are, it's going to have to be in relation to God. So what does the Bible then say about who we are as it relates to God? First, near the bottom, two-thirds down on that first page, you're special. Humanity is special because, as we saw last week, humanity has been made in the image of God, and that is in distinction from the rest of, of creation. Now, if you'll turn to the next page, we've been made in the image of God so that we can reflect God and His character back to Him as no other creature can, and we've been made in that image so that we can actually not just God can see Himself, but so that we can actually carry out a task on God's behalf, namely to rule or to manage on, on His behalf. So middle of that second page, you see the paragraph that starts with the assignment that humanity received? You see that? The, the assignment humanity received in Adam was to serve as God's vice regents on earth. God was, Adam was told to be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the air, over every living creature that moves on the ground. That's called the dominion mandate. It was given by the king of creation to all of humanity. That is, this mandate was not required of just our original parents, Adam and Eve, but rather as they are fruitful, as they increase in number, as they fill the earth, it's to be taken up then by all of their posterity and that would, that would be us. So we're special in that way. No other creature in the pantheon of God's creation is made in His image other than humanity. And because we are made in God's image, we now then have the ability to rule, to manage on His behalf His affairs. That's what we were made to do. Special. Bottom of that second page. Don't get too pumped up. You're not so special. <laughs> okay. So it's not, I'm okay, you're okay, and everything's cool. There's something wrong, and something drastically wrong. And the Bible tells us what that is that is, is wrong. Adam's authority, bottom of page 2, like all creaturely authority, is derivative and circumscribed by the God who delegated it. So it's derivative, it's derived from God. God is the one who gave it to us, and so He's the one who puts the parameters around it. After placing Adam in the Garden of Eden to, the Bible says, work it and take care of it, the Lord said to him, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat. I love to hear pages turn at the right time. That means half of the group is awake and knows that we're on the next page, we're on the third page, cool. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. One author has said, people often wonder why God put the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the garden. The reason is the tree reminded Adam and Eve that their authority to rule and subdue the earth was not absolute. So they were still, even though they were given, we were given this grand assignment by God, the dominion mandate to have rule over His creation, to manage His affairs on His behalf. Even though we have that, we are still under the authority of God, but our first parents deliberately chose to subvert God's rule for their own rule. 
succumbing to the tempter's enticement, you will be like God. And in doing that, they introduced to earth the worship disorder that had already affected heaven. So the Bible teaches that the serpent who talked to Eve in the garden is that old ancient serpent. The Bible calls him elsewhere. The serpent is animated by Satan. This is Satan who had his own designs on this elevation of himself above God. And that's what we mean by a worship disorder. Satan is a created being as well. A fallen created being who desired to invert the order from God to, from the creator to the, the creature. But having failed in that, sought to enlist then other created beings, humanity, God's highest created being, in his designs against uh, the creator. And so that next paragraph says, the worship disorder was manifested in the garden as it is now by this exchange of the worship of the creator in favor of the creature. And Romans chapter one speaks to that very thing. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised, amen. So the serpent is now served rather than the God who made the serpent. The fruit is now more pleasing than the promises of the God who provided that fruit. Their own self-centered freedom is now more desirable than dependence on the God who offered himself to be enjoyed forever. And that worship disorder has profound effects, has effects on the material world, has effects on our relationships with one another, but it also has effects on our understanding of who it is we are. Now we are mixed up in who we are no longer with a clear understanding of where we stand in relation to God. Now we have tried to subvert God's rule, and as a result, that has distorted everything. How we see ourselves, how we see others, how we see our circumstances, how we see our surrounding environment. So that next paragraph, the third full paragraph on page three, the fall resulted in both an abdication and a distortion. That is... We abdicated the role that God had given us to, to play the position in which he placed us amongst his creation. That has now been abdicated. And a distortion. Everything looks weird. Everything is, is, does not look clear as it did before sin entered the, the picture. I mentioned last week that it's similar to those trick mirrors that you have at a at a carnival, and you go walking by those, and you're, you see your image, and you can tell it's you, but half your body's over here, and it's, a, it's distorted, right? And so that's what's happening with, with humanity now. We've abdicated our position, and we now have a distorted perspective. But we were made in the image of God, and that image still remains. The image still remains, even though it's in diminished capacity, so you look at a human being now and you see a marvelous creature still. This side of the Garden of Eden, this side of the fall into sin, you still see an amazing creature. I mean, just think about as amazing as humanity is and with the creative ability that humanity has, think about what it would be like if it was not distorted. Think of what, about what it would be like if it was not affected by by the fall. The amazing capacity that human beings has now is still a greatly diminished capacity. 
And so you just think about what the world would be like and what humanity would be like if restored to where it was originally, what it, what it was originally designed to be. One day it will be as we will, as we will see. So on page four, In creation, God gave an orientation to His highest creature, but the fall resulted in a disorientation, and now we are in need of a reorientation. Thankfully, though we failed the test of the garden probation, God is graciously moving His restoration program forward. So here's what you got now, and for the rest of our time, I want to talk about what God's doing to restore it. But what we have now in humanity is, yes, this marvelous creature still, but in diminished capacity and with the ability to, to do great evil. So an, an amazing creature with the ability to do great evil. Every human being now is Jekyll and Hyde. Every human being comes into the world, some Jekyll and some Hyde. That's why Jekyll and Hyde's a classic, because <laughs> it's true. And it's hard, it, it, it's, it's, har it's hard to get your mind around that. It's hard to accept that, because you look at, we've had some babies born in our congregation recently, and you look at that precious child, and you look at all that that represents as a marvelous human being, God's highest creature. And you as parents look at that child and you say, there's no guile in that child at all. This is the perfect child. And the grandparents certainly look at it and say that. And the grandparents make sure that everybody around them looks at it and says, here, here are my grandchildren. See that? See that perfect child with no guile? But if you step back, if you can just take the you know, relation out of it a little bit, if you can uh, remove yourself and dispassionately look at it, look at it from a biblical perspective, Guess what? That child's like their old man and their old lady who are like their old man and old lady. Going all the way back to, to Adam and Eve. So every person that comes into the world now is this mixture. So what happens after you come to Jesus? What are you then? You're still a mixture, but here's the huge difference. The power in the mix changes radically. You see, when before someone comes to Christ, they're Jekyll and Hyde, but the evil side always has the upper hand, in fact, dominates. Thoughts, will, emotions. But when you come to Christ, it doesn't mean then that all of that struggle with sin within you and the habits that you have engaged in, we've engaged in prior to coming to Christ, that just all magically disappears. That's not true. But what changes is now the power dynamic changes completely so that you have a relationship with Jesus, God the Holy Spirit abides with you, and you now have power over sin rather than sin having power over you. So the power dynamic changes, changes radically. And in the future, God is going to obliterate all vestiges of sin so that you can only do what is right. Right now, you can still sin, but you have power over that if you're in Jesus Christ. 
God's going to obliterate all vestiges of sin, both within us and outside of us in the creation, and that will be what we know as, as heaven. But in the meantime, it is what I say about a third of the page down on page four. It's who you know. In the midst of the judgments that God levied against the participants in the fall, God graciously issued a marvelous note of hope in this Latin term, the proto-evangelium of Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Proto-evangelium means, the evangel means good news. We get gospel from it. Uh, euangelion is the uh, Greek word in the, in the New Testament for gospel. So proto means first. So proto-evangelium means first good news. First gospel, that's what it's saying. And that comes in Genesis 3.15, where in the midst of giving these judgments, God says, I'm going to put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his, his heel. So God says there's going to come a solution to this problem of sin that's going to come through the seed of the woman. This is going to be a human being who is in the future going to make an end to this issue of sin. We know that human being to be Jesus Christ, but of course he came millennia after this, this promise was first, first made. God's purpose in creation, in the fall, and in redemption has been stated well by my theology professor, Dr. McCune. God's ultimate purpose and the unifying principle of his activity is to glorify himself by establishing a rule of loving sovereignty and fellowship with human beings in his image dwelling with them forever. Restoration of the image is required because God is intent on receiving glory in his world. God will be glorified, and since God's image and glory are interrelated, as the quote at the top of the page says that we read last week, then it follows that the image of God, the Imago Dei, must and will be restored. So in tracing God's pursuit of his glory and redemptive history, we of necessity then need to see this restoration of the image in humanity. How does that happen? In other words, the chief end of man, you see that's in quotes, because that's the West, famous Westminster uh, Catechism, and the very first question is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer in that catechism is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. The chief end of man to glorify God cannot ultimately be accomplished unless the image of God is fully restored. So we want to talk now about how that happens. How is the image of God restored? It's who you know, as we're going to see before our time is out today. So over the next few pages, I'm going to go through a bunch of what the Bible says about how God is achieving His purpose, reachieving His purpose of restoring the image to His creatures and receiving the glory that He made us for. Bottom of page four there, God's glory and God's image. In the last book of the Bible, we're given a glimpse of the heaven of heavenly worship. In Revelation chapter 5, the Bible says, Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And just two chapters later, uh, we were given another glimpse of the worship of heaven where it says in Revelation chapter 7, there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength 
be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Now, here's what's significant about those. This worship is focused on the character of God, that is, who He is. Theologians call this His intrinsic glory. Stephen Lawson has said this, God's glory represents the greatness of who He is, His name, His majesty, His power, His works, His holiness. God's glory is described as great, eternal, rich, and most highly exalted. This glory we call His intrinsic glory, or the glory He inherently, that inherently belongs to Him just because of His holy character. So what we're saying is God is just all that stuff, just because He's God. He doesn't have to develop it. He doesn't have to shape it. He doesn't have to form it. He is all of that. His character, inherently because He is God, is all of those things. It's His intrinsic. It's intrinsic to who He is. It's in His intrinsic glory. So glory means, you start to see, is His character. As you think about the glory of God, what are we talking about? We're talking about God's character. And the reason I have to make sure we all get that is because although many of us have been in church, you know, for a good while and we've read the Bible and maybe we grew up in Sunday school like I did, I heard the word glory used a lot. It's one of those Christian words that just gets tossed out there a lot. So that just like, you know, I was telling some people the other day that just like if you uh, go to, a, I go to conferences, a couple of conferences, the same one every, every year. And when I go, I'll see some people one year, and I won't see them again until that next year, but I want to remember them from year to year. And I want to remember something about the church that they're from, but I can't, especially the older I get, I can't. So I guess at what church they're from. But see, if I say, if I say first or Calvary, I've got a 50-50 shot. That's just like a thing, First Baptist Church. Calvary Baptist Church. I've got a 50-50 shot, so I throw it out there, and half the time I get it, half the time I get it right, okay? What's that got to do with God's glory? In church, if you're asked any question, if you just say glory, you've got about a 50% chance. You can sound like you know what you're talking about. Yeah, so uh, what, are we, what are we supposed to be about? The glory of God. What should, you be, what should be the highest thing you care about? I should care about glorifying God right? And so you're taught from a young age, glorify God, the glory of God. And then if you say, hey, what is the glory of God? Uh, huh, they didn't give me that one. Where's my cheat sheet? So what is it? It's God's character. So when we talk about glorifying God, we're talking about displaying God's character. His intrinsic glory is just who He is because He's God. And when we glorify God, we're displaying that character because we are able to. Why are we able to? We're His image bearers. We were made in His image. We can reflect God. So back to your notes then. God is to be worshipped because in His character, who He is, He's worthy. And God desires to recreate people who do that, to, who worship Him for who He is. So Jesus said this, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. They are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. As a matter of fact, middle of that page, 
The reason that God has people converted to himself, people become Christians, people are born again, people are saved, all of these interchangeable terms that the Bible uses for somebody that has a relationship with Jesus Christ. The reason for which we are saved is to worship God because he is worthy. Here's what the Bible says in Ephesians 1. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace. Why did he save us? Why are you in his family? Why are you a child of God if you are? It's to be to the praise of his glorious grace. The Greek word for glory in your New Testament is doxa. And we praise God for his glory so much so that we sometimes use praise and glorify interchangeably. And that's why this thing that we have called the doxology Doxa means glory, but we don't use the, we actually use the word glory in the doxology. <laughs> we use the word praise because they're so closely related. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And then Ephesians 1 goes on to say, you were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. But here's the part I want you to get. All of that is for what? To the praise of his glory. So you keep seeing that this is all about reflecting God's character. His glory is his character, and we are to be to the praise of that glory. We have to be restored to the image of God so that when God looks at us, he sees himself, which was the original intention. Now that God's glory, bottom of that page, is his character is seen in Romans 3.23, which defines sin as failing to be like God. Here's what it says famously, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So what's sin? Failing to be like God. Sin is not failing to be God, because everybody fails that. God didn't make us to be Him. Nobody will ever be God. But we were made to be like God in our character. Sin is failure to do that. Glorifying God is reflecting that character. And God is in the business of restoring that now. Romans 11.36 makes clear that God's purpose for all things is in fact His glory. From Him, through Him, and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. So God's redemptive plan, God's restoration project is going to result then with him being worshipped by people from every nation and tribe and people and language. It's God's desire to display his character, that is his glory, to his world, and he desires and deserves that the response be worship. Now, while God's character is his intrinsic glory, then that worship, that response, when we see what God is like and we see his holy character and all of the facets and attributes of that, our response is called ascriptive glory because of his character. God alone is worthy of worship. The concept of glory not only refers to the attributes that God possesses, that's his intrinsic glory, but to our acknowledgement of those. That's ascriptive glory. Why? Because... Greatness and honor are ascribed to him, recognized and acknowledged. Here's what the Bible says, Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord, O mighty ones, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Now, I'm going to stop there and 
Make a comment. We'll move on. If that's all true, and it is, if God originally made us to glorify Him because He made us in His image so that we can reflect His character back to Him, and if now His reclamation restoration project is to restore that image in us fully so that He can be fully seen in all of us, if that's all true, and if that's really what's at the heart of worship, because that's what you keep seeing here, right? That God desires to be praised, to be worshipped for who He is. So who He is is supposed to be at the heart of worship. Then how can you have a church worship service where the church doesn't talk about God and doesn't teach on the character of God? You say, well, what church doesn't talk about the character of God? Like a whole bunch today? Did you know that? Lots of churches don't have God as central to what it is they're doing. In fact, much of what is talked about in our churches today is about you and the impact that life has had on you and how God is here for you. But remember how the order goes in the beginning who? And remember what the problem is with our identity crisis? We've inverted that. And it's very popular to invert that. For us to talk about you and make it about you and God a servant of you is very popular. Just look at how many people show. But God looks at it and says, that's not what I'm looking for. It's about me. It's about my character. Tell people who I am. Make much of what I'm about. Show people what I say in my word about being shaped then into my character and how that is going to be your lifelong goal. In fact, I say, I, God, say in my, in my word in Romans chapter 8 and verse 29 that my goal is that you, quote, be conformed to the image of Jesus. So it's about God. It's about God the Son. It's about Jesus and this purpose, a third of the way down on that page, is consistent from the beginning of the Bible to the end. We've seen that Scripture ends with God being worshipped for who He is. We saw that at the beginning of our time in Revelation chapters 5 and 7. We've seen that He planned from before the foundation of the world to save people who would do that very thing. And we also see God's desire for His own glory at the beginning of history in creation where He made man in His image. You see Genesis 1 quoted there, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. The image of God in man means we reflect God. God is so intent on having His character displayed that He made man in His image to see His reflection in His highest creature. This reflection is not physical because the Bible's clear. As John 4.24 says, God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. But rather, it's personal and it's a moral resemblance to God. It's personal because we have the components of personhood like God does. We can think, we can choose, we can feel. We have mind, will, emotion. God has all of those. Those are personal faculties. And then it's moral in that we have the capacity to reflect God's moral character. Humanity replicates his creator on a finite level. Theologians speak of these two aspects of the image of God. There's the formal or public or broad aspect which made man a personal, rational, spiritual being. There's also the material, private, narrow aspect for which Adam and Eve included, for which 
uh, which for Adam and Eve, I'm sorry, included a true knowledge of God and an original righteousness and holiness. We're to reflect God, bottom of that page, back to God in the way we think and talk and act. All people were made to be a mirror of God, and He wants to see His reflection everywhere. That's why fruitful and increase in number. God has humanity as His mirrors everywhere to see His own image in us. We were made to reflect God's image, God's character at all times and in all circumstances. All people are to praise God for what He's like. All people are to imitate what God is like with their lives. But the mirrors are broken. We're still mirrors, but what we reflect is now distorted. As I said, our lives are like those trick mirrors at the carnival. So God's worship and God's mission. We've seen that God will be willingly praised by people from every tribe, tongue, nation. But how do these people become worshipers? At some point, they hear the good news because someone obeyed the great commission to give the gospel to all nations. God's purpose is that He be worshipped, and the means by which it's accomplished is by giving the message of Jesus, evangelism, the evangel, the gospel. This universal worship requires this worldwide mission, and God has chosen to use the gospel message to transform people. That's why we engage in evangelism. The reason that Christ gave the Great Commission is because here's what it does. It turns mouths and lives that now curse and rebel into mouths and lives that praise and serve. And they, in turn, seek to reach others to do the same. Missions exist. Evangelism exists because worship doesn't. And when there isn't worship then there isn't the reflection of the character of God. And if there isn't the reflection of the character of God, then we don't reflect God's glory. We don't glorify Him. And if we're not doing any of that, we are not what we were made to be. So, who does God say that I really am? That's what He made us to be. That's what He's doing to remake us into what we were originally designed to be. And then the notes, we said, here's how it comes together. It's who you know. So I want to take our final 10 minutes to talk about that, who you know. How do you get back to being restored into who it was you were made to be? So God makes the first man, Adam, and he makes Adam to represent all of humanity. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5 that Adam was our representative. Now, you say, well, I didn't get to choose him as my rep. When I vote for people to go to Congress, I get to vote for who goes. Who's my rep? I may not like them, but if I don't like them, they're only there for two years. We can vote them out. But Adam, I didn't even get a choice. And this clown represented me? But that's what the Bible teaches. Adam was our representative. But here's what you got to remember. Who chose Adam to be our representative? And do you think you could have chosen one better than God? Let me, here's a hint. Nope. So God chose the perfect representative for us. You can think of that then as you are there. This is you and me doing what Adam did. That's why then the consequences fall not just on Adam, but they fall on Adam's children all the way down to the present day. The first Adam, the Bible calls him that, the first Adam represented us. He failed. 
Here's what God did. God said, I'm going to send a second Adam. There's going to be another Adam that's going to represent people beyond himself. But he's going to represent those people that will ultimately come to him and unite themselves to him. So you've got the first Adam, he failed. The second Adam comes. You guys remember at Christmas time, we have one of our carols, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And one of the lines in it says, second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. The reason that Charles Wesley, who wrote that, says second Adam is because he knows his Bible. God sent us a second representative. That representative is God himself come as man, Jesus Christ. The first Adam failed. The second Adam succeeds. But succeeds at what? He succeeds at every last thing that Adam failed at. Have you ever considered that? When you read the first opening books of your New Testament, those are about the life and teaching and ministry of Jesus. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And as you read those and you see what it is Jesus did in the opening chapters of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 4, fourth chapter, first thing that happens with Jesus' ministry, Matthew chapter 4, is he is tempted by Satan. Now, do you all see what's going on here? The first Adam was put on probation. He has this test and he fails it. The second Adam has now come, and immediately he's going to have the same kind of test. And you go to Matthew chapter 4, and Satan tempts him and says, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world if you will just worship me. And Jesus quotes scripture back to him, and Jesus passes the test, succeeds where the first Adam failed. And then he goes through his, his earthly ministry and he heals people and he teaches. And in every piece of that, the Bible tells us that he was in all points like we are yet without sin. So he failed the, or he, he passed the, the test that the first Adam failed. And then throughout his life, he passed every test of every thought, every word, and every deed. No sin. See, that's what Adam was supposed to be. But now the second Adam is. And because he did that, now he can serve as the one who's going to do what the first Adam was supposed to do. He will now rule and reign on God's behalf, on God's throne, in his kingdom, just like Adam was designed to originally do. What Adam abdicated, Jesus will completely restore. And this is why in Philippians chapter 2, this famous passage that many of you know, verse 5, Philippians 2 says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then it goes on to talk about the fact that though he was God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be held on to, but rather he humbled himself and he became a servant and he became in the likeness, in the form of humanity. And he became, it says, obedient all the way to death on a cross. No sin, absolute obedience to the will of the Father all the time, even meaning going to the cross. 
And because he was absolutely obedient and righteous in every thought, word, and deed, verse 9, Philippians chapter 2, therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The second Adam succeeded where the first Adam failed. And therefore, he's the man. And therefore, he is the one to whom you must be united in order for you to be the man and woman you were made to be. That's the Bible story that he has now come as not just the second Adam, the last Adam, by the way. The Bible calls him the last Adam. There ain't going to be another. He's it. And your hope and the hope that we hold out to you and that God gives to you is that you attach yourself, you become united with Jesus Christ, and now you are restored to what you were originally made to be in Jesus. So that ruling that we were supposed to do, Jesus is going to be, and guess who's going to be there with him? I'm not making this up. The Bible teaches that Jesus' people will rule and reign with him. Why? Because that's what we were made to do. And Jesus is restoring everything, every last thing that Adam, Adam destroyed. So he does that. He does that by living the life we were supposed to live, Adam was supposed to live, we were supposed to live after Adam. He lives the life we were supposed to live. He died the death that we deserve, paid the penalty for our sins, so that now you come to him, you're united to Jesus, God sees you through his son, so that Hebrews chapter 2, get this, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10 says that he is not ashamed now to call us brothers and sisters. When you're attached to Jesus, you're in the family of God. When you're united to Christ, you, you become God's child. Identity crisis, who am I? Oh, man. See, for me, it gets really good at this point. Because I'm attached to Jesus, I know, I know who I am. I'm a child of God. I'm considered a brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. An inheritor now of all that God has promised to humanity that's going to come to fruition in Jesus. And I'm an heir of that because I'm attached to Jesus. So he offers that to you. We're going to pray in a little bit. You have an opportunity to receive the gift of uniting with Jesus Christ that he offers to you so that your identity now becomes restored but it's only restored through the last Adam, the one who succeeded where we failed. We now need somebody outside of us because we're messed up. Can't be Jekyll and Hyde. You need someone who's perfectly God. We've got that in Jesus now. So receive what he offers. United to him, in his family, heirs of all that is promised to Jesus. One last thing. 
When he does that, I said earlier, okay, you don't automatically, all your junk is gone. You still carry your junk with you. I've got junk. My wife, if you want to know, she can tell you the junk. We've all got sin. We've all got our issues. And we still struggle with those. But the power dynamic has changed radically. And Jesus now begins changing you from the inside out. And so day to day, week to week, month to month, year to year, you're becoming more like him in the way you think and talk and act. Your mirror has fewer cracks in it. Every week, God's repairing a crack in the mirror. So that when God looks at the mirror of my life, he sees Jesus more clearly. And the Bible promises the coming day when we will be glorified. Now, what does glory mean? Character. What's being glorified mean then? We will perfectly reflect the character of God again. That's the gospel. That's the good news. It's for you. It's for all of us. It's how our identity crisis is overcome. It starts there, but then it goes on. In the weeks ahead, I'm going to talk about how these truths about our relationship with the last Adam practically affect us. How that I no longer have to be a people pleaser in my life, for example. How I no longer have to fake my identity to make myself look better than I am. All of those are practical things that flow from the relationship that we now have with, with Christ. But I want you to have that. And so we're offering that to you now. God's offering it to you through me. So we're going to bow. When we do, here's what I encourage you to do. If you've come to Jesus and you appreciate anew what he has done for you in restoring your identity before the God who made you, thank him. Thank him profoundly. If you've never done that, now's your chance. And what you have to do is simply acknowledge, hey, I'm a broken mirror. I'm a mess. I don't reflect your character the way you made me to reflect. I'm a sinner. And so, Lord, I know my only hope is not within me, but outside of me, and I believe it's in Jesus Christ. And so I ask you to rescue me, to save me, remake me, bring me into your family. From your heart to God, in your own words, no magic formula, you acknowledge that you need him because you're a sinner, that he's the only hope because he's the Savior, and you ask him to rescue you. He'll begin his reclamation project in you before you leave today. Let's bow. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to rehearse what you made us to be and yet what we've all become. So, Lord, we are special as made in your image, as your highest creature. But Lord, we are not so special because sin has afflicted and infected each of us. It shows up in different ways and to different degrees, all of us have it. And so, Lord, I thank you for rescuing me, saving me, doing all of the things that the Bible says become true when we're united to the Lord Jesus Christ, the last Adam, who did for us what we could not do for ourselves, and when we're united to him, we're adopted into your family. And God, the Holy Spirit, takes residence within us so that we are being chided when we sin and we are being moved in a godlike direction day, day in and day out. 
gradually conformed to the image of Jesus, this side of heaven, fully conformed to him when he comes in glory. Lord, in the meantime, then help all of us who have come to you to live lives of absolute gratitude, thanking you for what you have done and seeking and desiring and joyfully pursuing your reflection in our lives. And I pray for anyone here who came into this room and did not understand what the good news really is. The good news is you've done what we couldn't, that Jesus Christ succeeded where Adam failed, and that we are invited to unite with him and to have all of the blessings that accrue from that. And so I pray that they will throw themselves at your mercy, acknowledging that they are the broken mirrors, the sinners who have broken your law, who are Jekyll and Hyde and who go their own way, and we were made to go your way. Save some. Glorify yourself in doing that by yet another mouth and another life that's turned from rebelling against you to praising you. May we glorify you this week in the various fields that you've assigned to us. May we represent you well and accurately. We ask you, Lord, to grant us safety. Bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Just before you leave, men, any of you who are able and willing, if you can stick around, we are going to, you see up on the screen there, it says Ladies Christmas Social, but this is for the, uh, this is for the dinner that we're having at 5 o'clock this evening for our celebration dinner. That's the diagram for how the tables need to be set up so we can get that done pretty quick. Guys, if you can hang around here, you'll be given some instructions for how to do that. Thanks. Ladies, and any of you that have to go, have a great week.